Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Diana Mitlin, is a professor of global urbanism at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. Much of her work focuses on issues surrounding informal urban settlements, commonly known as slums. And in this episode, we discuss why slums present such a profound challenge for global development and how getting policies around slums right can lead to big progress towards the sustainable development goals. We kick off this discussion talking more broadly about the scope of the challenges surrounding the nearly 1 billion people around the world who live in what might be considered a slum. We then discuss what policies work to uplift people who live in these informal urban settlements and how successful policy is being implemented by some cities and local governments around the world. This episode is part of a content partnership between the podcast and the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. For the next several months, we'll be featuring from time to time experts from the Global Development Institute who will discuss their research and also the pressing news of the day as it relates to global inequalities and development. If you'd like to learn more about the Global Development Institute, you can go to gdi.manchester.ac.uk or click on the ad on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Professor Diana Mitlin. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Can we define our terms a little bit? What do we mean when we say slum dwellers? And is that even the preferred nomenclature these days? So that's a very, very good question to start. I think slum dwellers means many different things to different people. In India, for example, that term slum actually has a legal meaning. That's not often the case in many other countries. It's used uh, in the United Nations to mean deprivation in terms of basic services, secure tenure, uh, substandard housing. But it's also used very generally as a as a somewhat derogatory term. So it, it, it is often a little bit loaded. And I'm sure there are many parents who've turned around to their kids and said, your bedroom looks like a slum. Uh, so slum dwellers generally means someone who lives in an informal settlement, a settlement that uh, has elements of informality, informal tenure, informal housing. Often there's inadequate access to basic services, water, sanitation, drainage, uh, 
uh, electricity, sometimes also housing and health. Um, sorry, sometimes also health services, education services. So, so what term do you use? Because I, when I was thinking about how to interview you uh, about this topic, it just kept occurring to me that it almost sounds like pejorative, the, the, the term slum, for, for reasons you described. But it is a, a term that I do see used in academic literature. So it's used quite widely. There's a recognition in academic literature that it actually fell out of use and probably began to come uh, back about 10 or 15 or about 15 years ago. Um, and then there were some academic papers that were con expressed concern about this. I tend to use uh, informal settlements or often low income and informal settlements. There's some there's some formal areas where very low income people live and which have become very dense where, for example, people rent out rooms rather than apartments. Um, but no, no term is really perfect. There's a lot of ambiguity around them. Um, slum may be used quite inaccurately by local or national government. Hmm. Uh, okay. So, so how big is, is, um, the, the problem of people who live in slums, informal settlements where there are inadequate services. What what are sort of figures we're, we're talking about globally? So the commonest figure is the figure the UN produces. Um, it's now about 880 million. That is probably about three years out of date now. So often the summary figure is one billion or one in seven of the global population living in urban areas without adequate access to basic services, secure tenure, and often with unsafe housing. And where is this uh, issue most prominent? You mentioned India before. Um, are, where else in the world are, are places that are sort of known to be uh, where slums are, are most prevalent? So uh, they're prevalent across the global south, also in some contexts of the global north, although that is probably a little bit rarer. Um, What's an example of a slum in the global north? <laughs> well, there, there, for example, I've read a literature that talks about concern about trailer parks in mm. some parts of the U.S. Uh, there might be um, travelers settlements where mm. then adequate access to services. There are concerns, for example, even in the U.K., there was a realization that around London and the southeast, some people were renting out garages because uh People couldn't afford very much, and so there became a, a kind of illegal rental sector, which shares some similarities with informal settlements in the Global South. In the Global South, there are very large informal settlements around major cities um, in across sub-Saharan Africa, also uh, across Asia, particularly South Asia, but also, for example, countries like the Philippines, uh, even countries like Thailand, which have relatively high levels of development, probably have about 10% of their urban population living in informal settlements. So why is this an issue that people who are generally um, aware of global affairs or generally sort of care about the world uh, ought to concern themselves with? Why, why does this issue matter? I mean, it seems on the one hand that People for millennia have been living in informal settlements in, in around cities. Why is this now something that we ought to uh, confront? So I'd like to change that question around a bit, because I think the issue more is why was it ignored for so long? Ah. 
So for a long time, there was a very strong sense in development that rural development was a priority. And certainly, I would say there are very many rural areas where development is needed. There was, unfortunately, a belief that urban dwellers were better off. Uh, often that was because they appear, they appear to earn more. And in, and in uh, nominal terms, they do earn more. Whether they earn more in real terms is less clear because they generally have to pay for housing, they have to pay for water, they have to pay for fuel. In some rural areas, people can access those things at little cost or no cost. So we had a situation in which arguably urban poverty in the global south has been ignored for a long time. Many people who have low incomes live in informal settlements because there is simply no formal housing that can be that they can afford. So what's um what what are some sort of challenges? I mean, walk me through maybe some specific examples of specific challenges that individuals, I don't know, in, in a city like Lagos might experience um, if they live in an informal settlement versus a more formal settlement. So uh Lagos is actually an interesting case because some of the very low income informal settlements there are under intense threat of eviction. And indeed, I think about 30,000 people have been evicted in recent months. That's partly because of contestation over well-located areas, uh, which real estate developers want to acquire. Mm. So one of the first challenges that families face is to have a home with reasonable levels of security. Single people may well um, be very mobile. They may, if they earn little money, share a room with other young people. Uh, families often try and rent at least one room for themselves. Uh, slightly better off families may rent two rooms. So those families will be living in a room maybe 10 feet by 10 feet or 10 feet by 12 feet. So a very small and crowded space. That room may be built of so-called temporary materials, so corrugated iron roofs at best, walls made from perhaps traditional materials, so, so mud, or perhaps more corrugated iron, perhaps cardboard, perhaps hardboard. Uh, they would generally be paying rent. So if they're very low income or the bottom 30% of income dwellers, maybe 30, 40, 50%, they would be renting that room in a small compound with maybe eight to ten other households. This is a model that prevails a lot across sub-Saharan Africa. It's perhaps a little bit different in some other countries. So continuing with the theme of sub-Saharan Africa, they'd be living in one room, at least perhaps two rooms. Uh, with other families, they'd be renting. They'd have to pay that rent on a monthly basis. It would take a significant proportion of their salary, maybe 30 or 40 percent. They would share a water point with other families. If they were lucky, water would be running 24-7 through that water point. In many cases, that wouldn't be the case. They would have irregular water supplies. Uh, they would share a latrine, a sanitation facility, a toilet. That toilet would, would probably not be connected to sewers. It would probably be some kind of pit latrine. Uh, that they would club, club together with other families and, and empty on a fairly regular basis. They would have to pay again for that. It would be unlikely that their landowner, landlord would pay. Uh, they would probably have some form of informal electricity 
which uh, some of them could not afford, some of them could afford, because it was informal, it would probably have quite a high risk associated with it. And one of the, I think one of the, really the most, the, 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 hard to find the right word, the saddest or terrible things is when you talk to people who live under those conditions, many of them talk about the fires which get caused often by informal electricity connections. And, and the families and friends they've lost through those fires in shack settlements. So people living with degrees of insecurity and at high risk. Yet um, many people who live in these informal settlements sort of choose to do so uh, because they've left rural places. And, and so it, it seems that sort of despite the um, seemingly deplorable conditions of these informal settlements, uh, it's still an improvement upon whatever they left behind in their rural villages? That's a really interesting question. Um, and I think you have to accept that people people do move because they think they have better opportunities and better lives. I think we can see that that is a fairly rational process. So, for example, with the, um, the financial recession in Asia in the late 90s, you actually had rural, uh, urban to rural migration that was twice the rate of rural to urban migration in somewhere like Indonesia. Really? So you, yeah, yeah. You had recession in urban areas. Urban living became unattractive, and people moved out of urban areas and moved back to to rural areas. When you had uh, the economic crisis in Africa during the 1990s, for example, urban growth slowed, didn't stop, but it was slower than anticipated as fewer people came to urban areas. So there's definitely a rationality about it. It doesn't necessarily mean that all things are better, of course. So there was research from Dakar, Bangladesh, which found that the educational attainment of children of first-generation rural migrants was lower than if they had stayed behind in their rural areas. So families had moved to Dakar, hoping to get a better life for themselves and their children, but actually their children had less schooling than if they'd stayed in rural areas. Those children were, had entered the labor market and were working. So people do move because they expect their lives to be better. They do uh, and may appreciate the opportunities that urban living brings, but that doesn't mean that life is easy. And many of them experience considerable hardship because governments have not thought through how to provide people with affordable housing and affordable services. So what are the downsides um, that, um, are, that, that accompany the fact that so many people live in these informal settlements to society as a whole? Why is it something, uh, to put it another way, that um, the UN and other entities are seeking to, to fix? Uh, well, I think the kinds of things that the Sustainable Development Goals are concerned about have to be imply that improvements need to be made. So, for example, one of the goals says that everyone should be able to access safe, clean and affordable water. That includes people living in those settlements. Um, it's very easy to find research that shows that actually people are spending quite a large amount on water, but because they're buying it through informal sellers, because there's no piped supply, they have to pay additional costs. Those informal sellers may not be making profits because they have to bring water in carts or bicycles from a water point that is outside of those informal settlements. So there is a real recognition 
that there needs to be a process that extends piped water, for example, into low-income areas, urban, low-income urban settlements. If you go back several years, decades, there was a reluctance by local government to provide services because they felt if people were squatting on public land, they would be encouraging them to think they could stay. There is now much more of a recognition that when you have a well-development settlement, it's likely to be allowed to stay, it's likely to be regularized, and that therefore services should be provided. So there is a recognition that a government should be providing public services, the public services that are required for health and well-being, for dignity, and therefore there is a willingness to extend those services. So governments are now more likely to try and meet those responsibilities um, and help people to have better development and better development options. I guess it seems if you're a government, you sort of have two options, right? You can um, either regularize this informal settlement by providing its services in the way that you describe, or you can sort of ignore it and, and sort of hope that people go away. Or um, as you mentioned, the, the example of Lagos, sort of sell the land to developers and evict the people. So if you go back a few years, eviction was a much more common response. And indeed, there was a recognition uh, or, or there was a belief by governments that people with low incomes really shouldn't be allowed to stay in low income areas. So you, you more commonly had something which said these people can't afford to have adequate housing. They should leave the city. They should go back to rural areas. Then governments realized that actually it would be hard to develop urban economies if you didn't have the low-income populations that were living in informal settlements. Cheap labor. So yeah, kind of cheap labor. And if indeed wage rates increased, people could afford better conditions. So you now have many local governments recognizing that their cities need the people who live in informal settlements. Those people are, are absolutely work. There is no unemployment benefit, so people don't have an option not to work. They may be underemployed, but often they're not underemployed. They are employed. They're employed sometimes in formal factories. So I visited one low-income area that was actually a, a tenement area in Nairobi, and people were earning, um, just trying to think, people were earning, I think, about 25,000 shillings, so maybe uh, $25. Uh, they were paying about 40% of their income in rent for a room. So people either work formally or they work informally, but they certainly work. So this actually leads me to my next set of questions, which is um, what sort of local governments are doing it right by informal settlement and slums? What are examples of, of maybe progressive or farsighted or just plain good public policy that's being implemented at the local level in the urban, in the, in somewhere in the, the global South. One of the most interesting examples of a government program that has sought to address the needs of people living in informal, informal settlements is a program in Thailand called the community organization development Institute. Now Cody was set up to work with informal settlement dwellers who wanted to save money and through savings, group savings, try and build new options to improve their own development, to be able to uh, improve their housing. They came together in housing co-ops. They generally built small terraced units, row housing. 
The government recognized the merits of what they were doing and they introduced a program called Bang Man Kong. What Bang Man Kong did was it worked with these communities and it helped them acquire the land they were living on. In most cases, that was possible. And when it wasn't possible, it helped to support them to buy other land. And it provided them with a basic subsidy that would improve access to sanitation, access to water and improve drainage and roads. People then took loans from Cody. The subsidy was provided by Bang Man Kong. People took loans from Cody, the Community Development Organization Development Institute, and then developed their housing. So this program has helped over 100,000 households. It's helped provide them with security. It's helped improve the quality of housing. People moved from those kinds of very of shacks built of very substandard material into concrete block housing, and it helped to consolidate those communities. In some cases, it also helped to provide them with better um, livelihood options. People came together and set up, up small enterprises which could employ them and give them a more secure and stable income stream through which to pay their housing loans and develop, development, develop new options for their families. So I think those kinds of examples really show what can be done, but it requires a commitment on the part of national and local government to rethink their approaches and to see how they can work better with populations that are trying to help themselves. Okay. Any other examples come to mind as well? So Nairobi County, which is the local government in Nairobi, is interesting because it's trying very hard to create uh, ways in which people can improve their housing while recognizing that there is a very large population, maybe two million living in informal settlements. So there's one particular settlement called Mukuru, which has about 105,000 households, so a very large area. In order to help the development of that area, the government has declared a special planning area, an SPA, and that suspends regulations. So it says we have regulations about the development. This is an informal area. Those regulations may not be appropriate. Let's put them to one side and let's work with the local population and the people who are employing those people who are living and working in the area to try and think about a way in which we can regularize tenure, we can look at new housing options, and we can try and put in water, sanitation and drainage, roads and pathways, the kinds of basic services that other people take for granted, slightly differently in a way that is more effective. So that is a good example of where a local government is trying to think through new approaches that will enable it to address the scale of the problem. And it sounds like listening to people who live in these informal settlements uh, is probably the most important thing that you can do to, to design effective policy. And it sounds like a bit that's what uh, the local government in Nairobi is doing. That's very, that's very true. Uh, there is a recognition that, generally speaking, governments that try and upgrade the places where people are living at the moment are doing better than those that try and um, evict and resettle them. So when governments evict, sometimes they don't do anything. Sometimes they do try and provide resettlement. That resettlement is often on the edge of the city and people who have to move to those new locations have high levels of transport cost and may be displaced from their family and their friends. The kinds of things that help them uh, make sense of urban living, that help them look after their children 
find job opportunities, uh, build new new build new development options for themselves. So finally, what can academic research about this issue uh, teach us about what works and in terms of confronting the, the issue of uh, slums and informal urban development? Or to put it uh, another way, what's some interesting, new and exciting academic research uh, in this field that, that's, that's sort of worth men- mentioning? I always think academics are struggling to keep pace with some of the innovations that are going on on the ground. So, but I think that academics have been important in trying to both uh, in trying to make multiple interventions. So, one thing academics often do is they try and work with grassroots organisations, non-governmental organisations that are looking at new models of urban development. They help to document those models and in documenting they that they legitimate them so local government may actually hear about some of the really important innovations that are going on at a local level not through uh their citizens but they may hear of them first through academics and then they recognize the value in what citizens are doing to improve their lives then there are other things that academics for example may help with may help learn about so there may be uh new models of trying to get trying to provide water in informal settlements there may be value in documenting work that's going on to set up new management systems and to look at the costs and benefits of those management systems for example supplying water through kiosks rather than pipe supplies hmm. there may be innovations around solar power for example that's one of the areas in which there's a lot of research going on what are the new and effective ways in which people can be helped to get energy in low income areas so, so it, it sounds like it's a, a broad spectrum of academic research that could benefit specifically, um, you know, the lives of, of people who live uh, in these informal settlements. But maybe specifically to like water, is there? I have to imagine that there's a lot of academic research around, for example, like how to price water in in um, certain urban settings and what um, factors need to go into determining how to price and, and distribute water. It's, that's an interesting question, you know. There is a lot of research <clears throat> that has looked at issues around water supply. There was a lot of research that looked at the consequences of privatizing water. There was a lot of research that looked at people's willingness to pay for formal water. But at the same time, there are an awful lot of informal settlements where water is not available 24-7. In fact, water available 24-7 is an exception rather than a norm. And there's a lot of settlements in which water is not priced at a level where people can buy WHO recommended minimum quantities, which are uh, 50 litres per person per day. So there's some, there is research, but there are big gaps around some pretty basic things. Diana, thank you so much for your time. This was fascinating. I'm glad we had this conversation. No, not at all. Anytime. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Professor Mitlin. And yeah, as I mentioned in the episode, this focus on slums and informal urban settlements is something that the United Nations, I know, is is focusing on more and more. So it was glad to have one of the world's leading experts on the show to discuss this problem in detail and the solutions to this challenge in detail. And as always, a big thank you to the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester for being a content partner with the show. We'll see you next time. Bye.